When I think about the functional utility of working on tacting to begin with, it's not that we aren't having felt sensations and emotions that are serving specific stimulus values in terms of how we're responding in the moment or what it's evoking in our own behavior toward another, but the degree to which we're under-trained or under-rehearsed in practicing those, attending to them, noticing them as discrete stimuli that are affecting our behavior, then we don't know that we're affected. It's very similar to the idea with mindfulness practice of if you sit still and you notice you have the same memories, the same scripts coming up in your mind over and over and over again, it wasn't like that only happened because you stopped and were watching your mind. Probably there all day. Mm -hmm. So what does that tell you about how it may or may not be shaping your behavior, your responses to others? And so that's where I see the bridge between tact and function of, you know, is there power in knowing what you're feeling in the moment? and knowing what others are evoking in you and you in turn of them that can provide a, a direction in terms of what the function is of the behavior that you want to engage in. Welcome back to Act Root to Fruit, Marcel Tassaro. And uh, this is a project about uh, functionalism, thinking functionally, ABCs of behavior, uh, and, and getting precise um, with uh, with some of the roots, the radical roots of this cool stuff. You, you know what? I wanted. I want to say real quick. Hi, Matthew. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> um, well, before I say what I want to say, um, today I'm I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Matthew Skinta, who is a uh, professor at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a uh, peer-reviewed ACT trainer and. Uh, FAP certified trainer, uh, author of Mindfulness and Acceptance for Gender and Sexual Minorities, uh, and then the new 2020 Contextual Behavioral Therapy for Sexual and Gender Minorities book. Um, what I wanted to say was, you know, when I'm on my game, as far as, you know, like for me, that means kind of being in the literature, doing stuff like this, being engaged with my consultation group in, you know, stuff when I'm doing stuff. Therapy is so much fun. Like I don't know about I don't know if fun is the right word. The the yeah. word is just like, man, I, I I love this. Love what I'm doing. I, I agree. I think there's that sweet spot where when we feel really authentic and mm -hmm. engaged and are yeah. in the flow of the moment, it it just it's we're in a great profession. Yeah. What I'm also trying to get at is that the 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 kind of tools I think that this affords me as a clinician makes the interaction with whatever the client's bringing so much more workable. You know, there's no like solving, fixing to be had. Yeah. Something I've noticed recently in consultation sessions that I recall clients saying as well is that I think when you have those moments where you're really on mm -hmm. or where, whether it's an intervention that's landed or a way of, of, framing a dilemma or something that feels really tight is getting the feedback when checking in about how things are feeling now with the client, with the consultee, with the supervisee, when they say, it feels like there are so many options now. It feels so open now. Like that, that's what I love to hear. That tells me that it's on. And I think it's that spaciousness that comes with yeah. 
you know, it's all the all the rules, all the fusion. It's it just winds us so tight. How do you get people to start thinking functionally and, and folks that you're training and consulting and working with? Um when I so when I think of like uh my trainees in the past, I I I have my sort of pithy rules that I give them to start mm-hmm. with. Um one one is to stop asking why. Why <laughs> is the worst question for thinking functionally? Okay. Why is um why is a question that our culture broadly reinforces the fabrication mm. of elaborate narratives for? Um, so it's a it's probably an over rehearsed response and an over reinforced style of speech yeah. that I want to undermine right away. And there's a part of that that's kind of like you know they shouldn't be like this kind of in a sense. Yeah, or um, or or the idea of. Um, I think when we talk about our clients' work, but this also comes up with supervisees and and consultees, that um, that it gives this idea that uh, and and I see many people who who practice contextual behavioral therapies but still fall into this trap. It it gives the false sense that you're going to find some sort of um, of uh, insight and that that's going to be the key that you uncover yeah. that. Yeah. And and that's not what the literature tells us. The literature tells us there is a great um, oh, and I'm blanking on the citation, but there was a great FAP article a couple of years back that found that um, that while contingent responding to a client in session was predictive of generalization and change in behaviors and increase in CRB2s, mm-hmm. um, that the client's ability to describe the functional chain of events had virtually no bearing on outcomes. Clients who get Can you really, say that again? Yeah. Like, uh, clients who get really good at telling us in our functional language what what they're doing um, don't seem to derive any benefit from that. Okay. They're so just, They're just pleasing us. Yeah. Yeah. And it can make us feel really satisfied as behaviorists mm-hmm. to be like, great, now they've learned. <laughs> um, that's that's another one of my slogans I would use with trainees and supervisees, which is um, they are not the ones learning to be psychologists. Mm-hmm. You are. Yeah. So, um, so there's this angle of, you know, we have to know what we're wanting to reinforce. Um, and not that we hide that from the client, not that we don't necessarily talk about functional events, um, but there are ways that we can do so that are more evocative or are more promoting of generalization. Okay. I felt this way when you told that to me differently. Who in your life would you be willing to try telling that story in the same different way to, to see if it affects them that way? Hmm. There's a functional relationship inherent in that response. There's um, there's uh, homework to promote generalization in that. And yet, we're not breaking it down. Like, did you notice that this came before this came before this? Mm-hmm. Can you describe it in that way? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so stop fishing for why and stop at, probably also stop answering the question why that yeah. will get asked by a lot of most of our clients, if not, you know, I would say a lot of our clients. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I tell my clients, you know, there's, um, in the therapy that I practice and the literature that I'm aware of, um, I don't know that it's helpful. We may never discover why. It may be that as we explore whatever it is you've come to me with, that um, that we develop a sense of the history of it and you feel pretty sure what the why is, where it came from. Um, so that may happen, but that's not our goal. And that's not what I think will help. Mm. And so okay. are you willing to go on this journey with me? Knowing that maybe you'll answer the why, but that's not actually the purpose of the work we're going to do together. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So stop fucking asking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So okay, you, that was that's rule number one. Real pithy rule number one. Yeah. What else? Uh, it sounds see. like you got a you have a, a go number two. Keep it awkward. Okay. Um, if things are going too smoothly, then mm -hmm. you're probably not finding where the challenges lie. Mm -hmm. You're probably not pushing your client out of their comfort zone. You're probably not leaving your comfort zone. What would be the most awkward thing that you could ask about? And that could be starting a session with, what are you most uncomfortable telling me today about what's mm -hmm. happened this week? It could be... Um, asking directly about when, when, you know, there are so many topics, sex, religion, substance use, where mm -hmm. we can fall into bad habits of talking in euphemisms with our client to the point where we no longer actually know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Ask, ask directly. Mm -hmm. And you may feel uncomfortable that way. And your client may feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And you're now speaking the same clear language and you know what's going on. Yeah, that's it makes me think of that that word weird. You know, when people say yeah. it feels weird. I'm like, what I, I, I that's one of my favorite words to lean into because I yeah. think for most of us, we don't know what I mean, we we're, you know. Yeah. Stay away from that. And I I like to use the body as a guide with clients. So that's also a great point of so what does weird feel like in here? Mm-hmm. What does weird feel like in your belly? What does weird feel like around your heart? What other places in your body do you feel that when you say weird? Yeah. Are there any moments you could think of or interactions where you notice that feeling? As a homework this week, could you, could you pay attention and just see when that comes up? Could we let weird be the guide? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and okay, so, but how does, how does uh, keeping it awkward help people think functionally? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, keeping it awkward, I think, helps us think functionally because, um, uh, so on the one hand, I think that, um, I, I think that uh, learning to read and, and to tact those nonverbal stimuli that mm -hmm. tell us when something is awkward gives us information often on what's being avoided it gives us information on where growth could occur. And if you do have a client, for example, that does go home and say track where weird comes up through the week, mm -hmm. then we could start to think about, are there common antecedents to weird? Is this, um, is this occurring because the client tried a new behavior? Mm -hmm. Or is this occurring because the client was engaged in an interaction 
where they needed to um, go to an emotional place that was typically avoided. And so then we start to get fodder for coming up with a new functional analysis of, of, of where does this happen? Where does awkward happen? Okay. How does awkward happen? Yeah. In what places and in what context does awkward happen? So it's the evocative piece. Of... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Get it, get it going here and now see how they act as a, as a, 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 a window into what's happening outside of the office. And it may or may not be necessary with every client, but often our clients may come without a clear idea on why things aren't working how they hoped they were in life right now. Mm-hmm. So yeah. these are also exploratory. What, what are the, where's the chain link fence that when we're too far away and we don't know where to look, we don't even see it. We just see the grass on the other side. Mm-hmm. So through learning to tact in this way, we start to see how have you fenced yourself in? Okay. What's this learning history that we're kind of deconstructing? Okay. And, and a lot of that, that um, I'm in a place right now for whatever reason where it's just, I feel like so people i just let's say people in general because i think i don't i like one things i like about act and and cbs is it's not clients and us it's people right Mm -hmm. Uh, so i'm going to say people but that we're not we're not uh, in contact with how much our our environment shapes us yeah and i think this is where it's so important to get our own experiential training because this is something that and it comes along with our culture in the u.s it um, goes along with the grammar of the English language mm-hmm. uh, compared to how we speak about causality in other languages, like some Latin languages might might uh, not centralize um, the actor in the same way. Mm-hmm. So, so we want to think about um, how stuck am I on myself as the agent that's causing everything in my environment? Because because we tend to uh, we tend to impose those rules on the other people we're with. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this uh, shame researcher June Tangney that uses the line in one of her books, "Shamers are blamers," mm-hmm. talking about the idea that um, if you think about um, shame as sort of an over over rehearsed attributional style of things that go wrong having their source in an individual then when it doesn't apply to you, it must apply to some other individual with agency. Mm-hmm. And, and you see the opposite in, in her studies of individuals that are low shame, that if you're able to be aware of the context in your own life and how you're shaped by things outside the skin, then you're going to be more open to how other people are shaped by things outside the skin. And so the, in that, the, the first, the, 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 those who are more heavily steered by shame um they they you're saying they, they first look at themselves as the culprits it's a self-focused emotion so it's really about uh an ad, a learned attributional style of attending to the self as the cause of what's occurred but then but the then i kind of when you say shamers or blamers i think they're immediately going to blame someone else that's what i'm hearing when you say that it, it can be part of the style. It's, it's really, um, 
if someone has to be blamed and someone always has to be blamed if you're really okay. fused with this rule that that selves are the only actors that are doing things in the world then yeah if it's if it's not me it's you and if i'm uncertain then it's you because otherwise it must be me mm. and it's not an option that it's yeah. the environment it's not an option that it's outside I, I wanted to ask you about tacting, but before we move on to that, I, I'm wondering if you have any other functional pithy rules. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think one of the easiest is always to think about the observer. Um, so one of the variations of the magic question that I would ask, uh, always ask clients at intake would be, if this is a good therapy for you, this mm-hmm. is the right fit, I'm the right therapist, you reach all your goals, it's however many months from now and you're walking out of this office... Um, if, if I were watching you from across the street, how would I know? How would I know all the goals are reached? What would I see you do? Mm, I like that. And, and so that idea of how would other people know, Mm -hmm. um, it, it disrupts the habit of coming up with purely internal stories. Well, I'd feel this way. Uh, feelings are like houses you can have them you cannot have them mm-hmm. so um so i want so so that's something that uh that i want to disrupt the client's um emphasis as well so many of our clients come in where their stated goal is actually about what they want to be feeling yeah or feel not better. feeling yeah. yeah and um and so starting to shift to what does that look like it's already setting the stage that that you'd be behaving in a different way mm. and it would be observable and people could notice it. So I think that's a helpful thing. Okay. All right. Um, thank you. And, and one of the things that comes up as, as we're working and talking here and moving along is, you know, you're deeply steeped in, in FAP and you're deeply steeped in ACT. Do you, do you have a sense of when you're working that you're doing one over the other? Or does it kind of feel like it's just, you know, I don't know, one thing you're doing? It, it kind of feels like one thing. So in my training, I started in a child track at Kent State where my mm-hmm. supervisor at the time was very behavior analytic. So I was um, developing treatment plans and working sometimes with small children with, with just very ABC kind of conceptualizations. And that was the same supervisor who first recommended to me, you know, if you're so interested and where behaviorism is going these days. There are these two great books that, you know, are relatively recent. And it was the the first FAP manual and the first uh, ACT manual. Mm. And um, the 91 FAP book. The 91 FAP book. Yep. And what was it? 97, the first ACT book. Um, 99. 99. Yeah, I guess 99. So, um, so, and this was the early 2000s. So I read them back to back while doing this ABA style or, or type work. And, um, and so for me, they're all just kind of fused together. They're fused with thinking functionally and they're fused with, uh, okay. uh, with each other. I, there, are, there are certainly, um, there are certainly specific techniques that I associate with some more than the other, mm-hmm. um, ACT certainly has a stronger repertoire in thinking about uh, work with uh, work with cognitions, mm-hmm. work with thoughts that are problematic or that clients want to go away or that they're very heady in. Um, 
But within the course of the same session, you might go from working with diffusion from a thought to how are you looking to other people? How does how are you relating to your spouse mm-hmm. when you're when you're stuck in that? When you mm-hmm. wake up and that's one hundred percent believable, how do you know that they see? How do they respond to you that shows that? And then we start moving into fap. Then we start moving into what's this like between us mm. right now? Mm-hmm. So it's it's a dance, but it's just a dance around different levels of functionality and where the attention is. Yeah. Okay. That that um, kind of validates my my place right now because I feel like a, a, a lot of just kind of feels like it boils down to clinical behavior analysis, basically. Yeah. And and I uh, just want to mention, you know, that fat book is is just I feel like it's a must read, and uh, it was reprinted in two thousand seven, you know, and you know paperback. It's you know used copies are pretty cheap, so I think yeah. like, last time I looked, it was like five bucks on eBay or something like that. You know, can we talk some about tacting then, and what's what's happening there, and what that means for for those who don't know that term? And sure. You know. So um, at its most basic is a form of verbal behavior attacked is, um, is is a verbal label for a nonverbal stimulus. So when I say your Black Lives Matter shirt is blue, it's attacked. Um, my shirt is black, that's attacked. Uh, often clinically though, we orient that to that um, interoceptive awareness of felt sensations in the body that are corollaries of emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, or correlates of emotion. So that's the place where with our clients who have, whether it's sort of normative male alexithymia or just sort of an under-rehearsed repertoire, perhaps um, a punished history for tacting their own felt sensations. Um, that's, uh, I, I think it's a really central skill that we have to build up in therapy. And part of it is because our sensations, our emotional experiences can have such a, a consequating effect or antecedent effect on our behavior that when we don't know what they are, then it's hard to develop a sense either for ourselves of what's motivating our behavior mm-hmm. um, or um, as a clinician to develop an accurate functional analysis of what's happening in the room or happening in our client's life. Okay, so we're we're um, guiding them to be more present to maybe something that they don't really know is there, um, and open up to it. That's the tact. Yeah, uh, well, and to label it, it can label. be helpful to label. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes our clients come with a paucity of labels. If everything is anger, if every sensation. Mm-hmm is sadness then it's hard to parse out uh, what's what's driving the moment to moment i mentioned before as well using the body often as a guide Mm -hmm. so i also think it could be beneficial even if our clients aren't used to or unskilled at or are unready or uncertain about labeling certain sensations that are coming up in their day-to-day life Whenever I do this, whenever I try this, whenever I'm with this person, this is what it feels like. And so we can still take risks around. So when you feel that sensation, would you be willing to try doing this? Okay. And you could do that work 
even before there's a label. Yeah. Yeah. I find that, you know, I, I am oftentimes noticing how I have those questions as I'm working on, on this tacting with a client and, and, um, I find it often helpful to just kind of do it with them. And, you know, before I ask, like, you know, I'm, we're, we're, we have an informed consent. I'm not bulldozing them, but I'm yeah. not, I'm just kind of demonstrating rather than, you know, the, and then, then inviting later, you know, yeah. I think so much of um, the beauty of this work is that, especially the fat pieces is, is, you know, the, the, the experiential component of, of, of sharing in that. Yeah. And we can also, I think particularly for clients where it's under rehearsed, we can also model it. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling this spaciousness here and this warmth in the area around my heart as you were just sharing this thing that happened this week and, um, and, and this wave of relaxation in my belly. Yeah. And, and it really feels, um, I feel like I'm connected with you and this feel, it, it, it feels hopeful. What are you feeling? What do you notice in your body? What label would you put to that? And then you allow them to do the same. Hmm. And so you can do that in successive approximations to, uh, to shape, to guide, to explore a client's awareness. Hmm. Yeah. And, and do you have, so as you think about moving this, you know, taking it from this, you know, what we're doing together to a, a bold move or a risk log. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you approach that in a in an artistic way that isn't now I want you to you know do this here's a here's a worksheet I want you to fill out you know after obviously I'm assuming that's not what you do yeah. um, sometimes no sometimes. Um, it's, I mean but uh, I mean, yeah sometimes it's appropriate but I'm just you know yeah. um, I think about like you know behavior activation and how can this be something that's you know incorporating I think that it's 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 really challenging I think for me at least it's challenging. To, to approach the work in a way that isn't doesn't feel like I'm just you know now you have to go do this. Um, one one way that I always introduce it is to start smaller. You know our clients are so ready to okay well if you're saying I need to make this bold move or this grand risk or I guess maybe what I'm saying is they don't often go for bold moves sometimes, but. When I think of risk logs, it's all it's often about the smallest approximation. Okay. What would the, you know, we've we've talked about your history, we've talked about what comes up when you share how you're feeling in these moments of conflict in your life. What would the smallest step be that you could do today or tomorrow? Would you be willing to write those down for me? If a 10 were the thing that were so intense. So just unloading every bit of rage and discomfort in your body at this person and you could never bear to see them again afterward. And a one would be just the barest extension beyond what you do right now where they can't even tell you're having a response. What would a two or three be? Hmm. Would you be willing to try and do a, a two every day this week? Could you let me know? Yeah. Um, Working in San Francisco in particular, clients were often very tech-oriented. So they wanted to share their Google Sheets they set up, or they do it in notes on their phone or something like that. Um, But just encouraging that. Could you try that each day? And working slowly. 
I set them up for the idea that, you know, this is a new behavior. You're going to, you're going to accidentally do something that's a six if you're keeping this up every day. So just mark that. And after, after two or three or four weeks, we'll be able to look at this pattern of sixes. And so, you know, it's actually not sharing when you're hurt by someone else. It's specifically when they've broken their word or broken a promise, it looks like. So would you be willing, what would it be like if you only took the risk to share you were hurt and look for those moments each day? Hmm. And we just build on that. And so we're always refining and building on. Um, I tend to, so I tend to do the smallest approximation more so than the bold move. Okay. I guess that's a little more fappy than acty. Okay. Maybe. I don't know. I have in my head bold moves I always associate Robin Walzer with and Okay. Oh really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I, I wanna talk about, you know, your work and your research and, mm-hmm. and your 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 um latest book. Uh um but anything before we move that direction, anything showing up for you that seems uh seems important. Yeah. Yeah, I guess if I were to add one more thing. It would be that I think the value of this practice that we do in session of jointly tacting with our clients and exploring our emotional experiences one-to-one, the greatest power in that is that it also allows us to do that in our daily life. Mm -hmm. That as a client begins to do that outside, Mm -hmm. that's where they start to shift from whatever's going on internally that's so noisy to what other people actually experience of them mm-hmm. um, because that's ultimately where we want them to turn. Right. Or I always think of CVS work as reorienting to the world we're living in and not the world we think we're living in mm. and the world we're actually living in is often a more compassionate place, mm. often a more forgiving place. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I mean, my mind would have me not do this podcast until I'm, you know, uh, a fellow in ACBS, you know, like yeah. that's where my, but, but, you know, because I've got to have my shit figured out and, you know, all my days have to be perfect and all this. And, uh, and so um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not following that. Yeah. Good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, you just published this book uh, last year and um that it is the the contextual behavioral therapy for sexual and gender minority clients. I'm wondering, you know, what what's unique about this work that we're talking about with um, sexual and, and gender minorities? Well, I think that um, there are two elements to hold in mind. Well, three come to mind. So the first is that um, is that I think we're really starting to get a Uh, come to a moment where people are realizing that even though a functional analysis is always catered or and tailored to an individual that um, cultural competency means knowing the histories and the group experiences of groups you're going to do um, despite your best intentions a more shallow or superficial uh, uh, functional analysis if you don't understand the meaning of behaviors in context that you don't share and so I think that's mm-hmm. the place to start. Okay. Um, I I think of, you know, and your t-shirts evocative on this, thinking of just uh, 
talking through an encounter with a police officer, a functional analysis of what's going on when a police officer is speaking to someone varies radically in our country Mm -hmm. based on the race of the individual, Mm -hmm. but particularly for black individuals. So um, thinking about that, thinking about what we know are shared context for sexual and gender diverse people is a starting point for doing better work because we do know that uh, sexual and gender minority people attend therapy at much greater rates than heterosexual cisgender people, for example. Um, So, so straight cisgender therapists are just going to have clients in the community um, and it's not a community they belong to. The next piece is um, really where I draw um, my valuing and what brought me to contextual behavioral approaches is that so much of the bias is still very alive in the world. Um, and one of the things that grabbed me right away, um, about ACT versus traditional cognitive therapy techniques is the emphasis on not changing cognitions, not Mm -hmm. changing, Mm -hmm. um, thoughts related to the possibility of rejection, of bias, of prejudice. And I think that that's really important for work with any minoritized community. Yeah. This, um, this openness on that front and then um and and on that note i just can i just add this uh, yeah yeah i mean if 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 i as a as a you know cisgender straight white male get into a conversation with someone who you know is a a sexual and gender minority and racial minority and they're talking to me about um you know some some um really difficult situation that is, you know, socially and culturally driven, um, you know, me trying to get them to diffuse from that is probably not the most functionally appropriate thing in the world to do. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, it's not only not functionally appropriate, but, um, but you only know that if you're taking time to pay attention Mm -hmm. to diverse communities and what their experiences are. I have a chapter in the new book on trauma where I emphasize the role of racial trauma, which is Mm -hmm. getting a lot of new research. Um, It's very rare, for example, in contemporary broadcasting or newspapers that you see photos of dead bodies on the street uncovered or that you see video circulating of of individuals being murdered with the exception of black individuals. Mm. When you think of the, the George Floyd video mm-hmm. or others, like you're literally watching someone be murdered. Um, when's the last time you saw such videos or uncovered bodies lying in the street with a photo in a newspaper um, of white individuals, mm-hmm. not in a war zone? Yeah. yeah. And so these are, these are distinct and traumatic differences that overlay with the communities that we work with. Um, histories around uh, histories around um, whether or not uh, healthcare providers or the government are trusted authorities or might be considered to be um, both believable and to care about your community. These vary by the communities we belong to. Mm-hmm. So there's this piece. There's also the relational piece. This is where I think some of the skills of, of FAP or there's some attention in the literature to the interpersonal aspects of work and act 
that are so important as well of if you belong to a majority group, there's some some degree of passing the test of of being trustworthy enough as a therapist Mm -hmm. or how you repair ruptures. So I have a whole chapter that I spend just talking about that where um, one of the things that's significantly more common for uh, queer and trans people compared to straight cisgender people is rejection by family members. The idea that someone that you have a warm, what you believe to be trusting and loving relationship, and then it's severed. Mm. This is a form of, of, of trauma. And um, you can't be interpersonally guarded and do good work in a community where neutral or ambiguous responses to vulnerable disclosures are a red flag that rejection's about Mm. to occur. Yeah. So these are the pieces I try and touch on and how you might bring these skills and why I think these contextual behavioral skills, the things we talk about in our community, can be so powerful and important um, specifically for working with gender identity and sexual orientation diversity. Yeah. So thus ends part one of our chat. And uh, now it's time for part two, a therapy demonstration slash a.k.a. real play. To me, I feel like all of the contextual behavioral therapies um, are really about, can we get outside of this chatter and this overwhelm and notice what's happening in the world around us or in our relationships when we're with people? The thing that's uh, circling for me right now is the, the, the idea of this more, you know, go to the beach. Oh, I'm enjoying the beach. I need to come to the beach every day. You know, I got to get to live on the beach. I mean, because as you talk about this theme of more, as you talk about eating lunch while watching the videos and sort of always keeping moving, what's that do for you? What would you, what would you have to sit with? What would you be feeling if you didn't? What happens when you're still? I, I think the mind, my mind is like, it just uh, wants to maximize every moment. You know, like I want to, I want to squeeze as much lime out as possible. That's, you know, and, um, I don't, uh, that's a, that's a value, like not leaving anything on the table kind of, um, that maybe is, um, part of that, like kind of run amok, you know, like, I don't know. I just, I want to know what's going on. I'm, I've been, I think that I've been, you know, unwinding from this, you know, toxic, uh, former president and the, you know, being addicted to the news and, you know, you know, watching the news and using that as entertainment. And I'm, um, so that's part of it too. So, so there's also the hook there of the emotional intensity of what was, of what could be and what it looks like now, but what's the, what's the fear there? What happens if you're not totally squeezing the lime? What happens if you save a lime for tomorrow? I don't know. I guess I, I think about my my kids and how you know I'd like to be able to get all my stuff done and compartmentalize it, and then have really quality time where it's you know not I'm not distracted, and so that's 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 kind of part of it, you know. So what's showing up? What am I what am I afraid of missing out on? I don't know. Does that happen where if you 
you feel like you haven't done enough, haven't been productive enough, haven't pushed enough that you can't be present with your kids or, or is the fear separate from that? Mm, it does happen. Yeah, it does happen where, you know, I'm, I'm distracted and I'm, I'm there, but not there as I'm working things over in my, in my mind. Um, and I really, I mean, I really value, I really value slowing down and, um, having space between things. I'm not, I'm not living that completely right now. And I think there's been just a lot of frenetic energy in my life. And, uh, and then I, I kind of get this energy bug and I just kind of, you know, ride it, I think. And, and then, and my concern for bringing this up is like, I don't know. I just, it just, it, I really feel like I'm like at points kind of, kind of just like a, a, a mouse or a rat in the operant chamber, just hitting the, the, the cocaine lever, you know? Just... Yeah. Yeah. So, so what happened? What do you notice with your kids when you have that, that urge and you're with them? I mean, you mentioned your mind being two places, but does that affect the time? Does that affect them? Does it affect what you do together? Hmm. I mean, to me, and, and what jumps in is that part of me that like, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting as much out of, I'm not like, you know, I'm, I'm not completely immersed in this as, and, um, I'm, wa- I'm wasting time, you know, I'm, I'm here, but I'm not here. And, um, you know, I, I think there's a certain vitality that's, that, uh, is, is different between, you know, me being present and me not being present. And, uh, and that doesn't mean I need, I, I'm not, I guess I'm, I, I'm not saying I need to be like, you know, it could that me being present and vital in, in, in living that value could be me sitting on a park bench, watching them while they played, you know, it doesn't yeah. mean I'm like swinging, you know, off of the, the jungle gym with them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I, it, it sounds like, it sounds like if I were across the street watching, like what you would be doing with them wouldn't be different, but the experience feels less because you're sitting with this story or holding it really tightly that it has to feel a different way when you're with them. Mm-hmm. And can that just be there? Can you just carry that feeling? Like, like what's it like to just notice the, the inner rat wanting to push the lever and just letting the rat be with you at the playground? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and going back to the YouTube while making lunch or eating lunch, you yeah. know, um, yes. Okay. Yes. What's it like? Sorry. I, I <laughs> just bullied by what you just said. Yeah. That's being present to, to everything that's, that's there. Cause what's the, what's the, what's the felt sensation? when you picture being with them, if you could imagine just letting the rat be on the bench and not needing attention while you're watching them play on the, on the playground. Well, I think there's a certain turning towards, like there's a certain just. Describe what's in here. These are very heady words. Yeah, they are. They are. What's, what's going on in your heart when you're in that moment? If you could picture just being there with them both. With the kids and, the, and the moment is the moment is 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 seeing feeling what's there um 
It's an expansive feeling. It's uh, it's kind of uh, you know billowing out. Uh, that happens rather than like uh, you know the raisin, yeah, <laughs> shrinking, the, the clenching, yeah. Um, and uh, there's some feelings of of just I don't know. You mentioned this like you know this this um, things that help our our uh, arteries open up and and uh, you know different different organs will function more appropriately and properly and uh, um, there's a certain loosening up there that that happens um, yeah it, I mean it sounds like there's a piece of it where noticing and naming it and letting the rat be there while you have lunch without youtube while you while you try in other places i mean that could be the practice that allows you to do that when you're with your kids at the park mm -hmm. because whether the rat's there or not it doesn't sound like it necessarily affects their experience and it doesn't necessarily affect your ability to be there with them it just feels like you have to do something with it mm-hmm yeah, and maybe you don't. I like doing shit, though, Matthew. <laughs> we live in a culture that says we always have to be doing shit. But... Yeah. So I'm trying not to do anything with it right now. You know, as I look at you and uh, feel some of that showing up. How present is the rat right now? Mm. reminding it, you of other things to do today it's, it's yeah it's no it's more just like you're not immersed in this enough you're you know you're just robotic and you're you know saying you know act friendly words and following some script or something you know and um yeah it's present Is the rat your friend? I don't know. Sometimes. Could be. You know, there's a potential. My mind went to Splinter from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which was a friendly rat. My my mind went to this uh, old uh, comedic web series called Frenemies. Hmm. The, 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 um, but that idea of... Um, it feels like we want there to be a rule that we're friends. We should be. We want other people to feel like we're friends. Mm -hmm. But but there's also this cutting edge. What would it be like to treat it as a frenemy? I guess I, I think about just, you know, doing what I just did, which was acknowledging it. And uh, doing that. And I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe there is some some things there that are, are useful. There's some things that are that are um, I, I guess I could get some direction sometimes and sometimes I can, you know, get back to playing on the swings or sitting on the bench. Would it change? how it is for them and you, you think, or your relationship, if your kids knew about the rat? 
if they if they knew this metaphor and you could share with them yeah the rats here today possibly i'm thinking about kind of a a stretch to like stretching this or accountability kind of like hey you know there's this there's this rat that sometimes you know comes up and and takes my attention well you could even find there are so many. You could show her on YouTube some of the, the learning lessons and the lever pushing. And there's a part of me that feels like this sometimes, that I just want to work. And sometimes that part's even there. This rat shows up even when I'm trying to play this game with you, even when we're at the park. And so one of the stretches could be to invite her. You know, if you notice, I seem distracted. You can ask me if the rat's here today. Hmm. Okay. What, what does that feel like as you try on that thought? I guess I have some fear about that and about um, um, putting anything on her, putting too much on her, you know? I mean, I, I like I, I like the I, I like the idea too, and I like the the you know normalizing this and and, and, and teaching her the realities of being a human. <laughs> well, and I'm thinking if she's starting any classes, even little ones on uh, Zoom, she may identify with the rat, mm-hmm. and like so many children. Um, what if the story is one that's liberating? What if she's been trying on the thought that dad doesn't like to play with her? What if she's been trying on the thought mm-hmm. that you don't like her as much as your work or your clients? Mm-hmm. Could this be a freeing story? Could this be one where it's actually a world where dad loves her and loves to spend time with her? Mm-hmm. And sometimes this rat is distracting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's I I really appreciate that. Cause cause the world I live in now is one where I work from home, and uh, and the the you know they're the kids are home with us. My my, my, yeah. my partner works from home too, and uh, and uh, you know they 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 see us working a lot, and yeah. um, and it's like on one hand, but and and we we do a lot of stuff together, a lot of quality time. Yeah. Um, but I, I fear, you know, um, what, you know, because, you know, the, the world I'm used to growing up in is, you know, parents go away to work. And you don't see them, you know? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of chatter around that, you know, and getting that right. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, a huge chunk of the world is in the same boat right now. Yeah. 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 Cause well, I mean, I don't want to, I, you know, I know the screens, the screens are not going away. <laughs> yeah. Not but, soon uh, enough. That's yeah. I want to pin some of this, some of this ideas, some of this work in my heart. And, so, um, yeah. so what would be the step that you'd want to take? What do you do with the rat? And what do you want those you love to do when they notice the rats around? 
All right. I want to I want to explore this this frenemy a little bit more. Sure. I think that I've been it's it's been kind of uh, an enemy mostly or a a, a boss enemy, a benemy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and maybe uh, maybe a different stance would uh I'd, l- I'd like to try a different stance i don't know about maybe i'll just say i'd like to try a different stance and uh and then i i do like the idea of of opening up and uh talking about you know with with my loved ones uh how how i can be how i can be held and seen yeah yeah and without falling into the trap of needing to get rid of the rat and without without it being fully the enemy. The rat has great stories about how it's for the best for you. How if you listen to it, you'll have even more time without it to spend time with family, to be connected. He just yeah. keeps sticking around when when those times are happening. So Yeah. Yeah, I just I got the image there of like, you know, what if if it wasn't so much a you know, uh just open the cocaine lever if it was you know more of a let him out and and uh i don't know you know those people with the ferrets they just kind of have got the ferret on them yeah <laughs> i'm I'm old enough to have been a little kid and seen beast master beast master yeah do you remember that 80s movie the ferrets run all over the guy no uh, yeah it's not kid friendly don't watch it <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay cool thank you Wondering maybe we can we can um, talk about you know what you, what you were thinking there and and um, you know consider some functional aspects to our interaction. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as you were talking, first, well, I was noticed one of the first questions I asked was about what would you feel or what would be there. Mm-hmm. When you when you don't give in, when you aren't caught up in that cycle, and so or something thereabouts, where where that's to get to the function of is there avoidance in this? Mm-hmm. Is there avoidance of the present moment? Um, it didn't sound like that as much as um, parallels with self criticism. So then I went the route of, could we accept this? So acceptance processes, but it's also powerful diffusion to personify. So mm-hmm. it became the rat and then stayed the rat. Mm-hmm. Um, often with my clients, um, I'd have insisted at some point with on an absurd name for the rat at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and kids like absurd names, but... Mm-hmm. Adults hate them until they love them because they're defusing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then thinking about uh, uh, how I felt. You know, I've, I lived in San Francisco a decade before I came here. So uh, one of the most common sources of self-referral to my practice were from startup widows, as uh, one client coined the term, uh, meaning someone whose spouse was such a workaholic that... Uh, uh, they were sort of always having wheels turning in that way. So then I start thinking about the function in your interpersonal life. Mm-hmm. So 
you're telling me that you're there and it and it doesn't sound like it's necessarily changing the quality of your time with them but there's a fear that there is so one of the functional elements of the homework of bringing them in is not just so that they might feel closer because they may but also because of the idea that you would wind up getting external feedback about how other how others experience you because it also sounds like there's some fusion to a story there's this uh, this rule that says that if you're not doing it right, that if you have the rat there while you're engaging in a connected activity, that people know and that people don't value the time and that people aren't seeing you the right way mm-hmm. and that you're not being the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so implicit within that risk is that you're actually getting external feedback about how other people experience that, which may actually be very minimal. Um, so there are so there are layers there where you're getting um, both direct external feedback that may help to loosen the believability of those ideas of what other people must be thinking when you're in that moment, and at the same time it gives the opportunity for um, for closeness. You have children that are starting to be of the age where. Um, particularly with so much of our lives and even children's lives wrapped up on screens, Mm -hmm. that there's that identification of the ways that we can multitask, that we could. Um, There are so many stories that you hear circulating with parents of like the kid who realizes they could look really intent and mute themselves and actually just pull up a cartoon on Netflix, things like that. So um, it's like the comic book in the Bible. That's the new version. Exactly. Exactly. So it becomes this opportunity to um, bring in some common humanity, which uh, I think it was uh, in one of Jamie Yadavea's papers where he sort of recodes that into act language. But common humanity is really a perspective taking exercise of those moments that bring us in contact with realizing um, how how less believable our stories are that we're in this alone um, that uh, that allow us to experience the ways that those who surround us and love us are having similar experiences that we can support one another mm-hmm. so those were some of the ways that I was thinking okay yeah thank you for that and I'm, I'm uh, as a follow-up I'm wondering if um, your mind considers or was considering kind of like antecedent factors, um, um, consequences, like, are you drawn to, were you drawn to think in any of that? So, um, yeah. So for me, um, as soon as something starts to have the flavor of being rule like, then I begin to assume, and this is something that you know, and anyone who's ever been to a talk that Steve Hayes gives this uh, has come up classically at boot camps. But that way in which um, the more rule-governed behavior we engage in, the more we have a rule about what's right. Because you talked a lot about this idea of it wasn't necessarily that you were not engaging or not having family time, but that um, essentially this wasn't the right way to. Mm-hmm. And so that tells me, or or I my conceptualization would be that the rule serves as the antecedent and um, more so than what's happening in the external environment. Mm -hmm. 
And so having these rules as antecedents for feelings like shame or guilt or, um, or other self-talk that's critical in the moment, or even the um, desire to do something, mm-hmm. the, the thought that this is a problem that needs removed, and, the, um, and some of the consequences that maintain it, well, anything that reinforces the rule can be intrinsically reinforcing. So when you engage in patterns of behavior, so you work harder and then you have a day where you feel like you're able to really put everything aside and just be with your family, mm-hmm. then that's, um, that's reinforcing the rule mm-hmm. and actually, um, actually probably heightening fusion. So then I'm thinking, so how do we undermine that? Because if the stimulus for you know, the antecedent is the rule, which leads to guilt, which leads to more work so that these things happen. And it winds up reinforcing the, the stimulus value that it's always the SO. It's always the stimulus outcome of, I have the thought, I behave this way. Mm-hmm. Well, then um, we, can't, we can't eliminate those bonds, right? Unlearning doesn't happen. There's extinction. But really, when we start talking about verbal learning, you can learn new associations or you can have organic brain damage. You don't lose it. So when we treat it like that, then we consider, can that stimulus lead to other responses? Can that lead to other responses that may also be reinforcing? And so many of the suggestions that we're making were other responses where the same stimulus, the arisal or awareness of that rule would serve as the prompt to to label the rat, Mm -hmm. to practice awareness, to practice sitting with, to practice self-disclosure. All of these things which lead to a different chain of consequences than the current one, which may be um, engaging in behaviors that reinforce the validity of the rule. Okay. Yeah, so so training training, uh, attention to, to other consequences rather than the day where everything clicks and, you know, it's a mindfulness play date. Yeah. 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 And, and there's this transference of stimulus function, right? Because it's not, it's no longer um, this rule and uh, whatever has, has um, uh, whatever chain of events have led to the presence of this, of this rule as an antecedent that are then governing the subsequent behavior um, that uh, some of these other behaviors lead to that rule being a marker that you're just like your family that's all living on the screen. Um, And so there may even be a point in time where I would hope that noticing that rule or noticing that you're violating it uh, could be a reminder that you're very human, could be a reminder that you're connected with the family family you're with, who's Mm -hmm. all sitting around the board moving their pieces and rolling the die and yet thinking about five other things or what's going on on screens in the background right now. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there for me and I'm, I'm tempted to, to go, go there, but I'll leave it alone for now. Cause uh, I think I, I think my cup is full. How much attention do you, do you give to like, like obviously you work very precisely, but I guess if you could kind of, um, reverse engineer a bit like how Mm -hmm. much you're functionally thinking about what's organizing the behavior what what utility for you is like having a a functional mindset 
I think it has great utility. I think if um, I think we'd have gone a completely different direction if the emphasis were on um, not on your expectations of yourself, but if you were emphasizing and describing, say, emotional responses of your family, um, or uh, or the impact or emotional backlash it had in your own heart hearing emotional responses and feedback from your family, then we'd go a very different direction. Okay. So, so for me, um, I think it's really, it's really central that, um, that we try as quickly as possible to get a sense of, are these internal or external antecedents? Mm -hmm. Are these internal or external consequences? And what are the odds that, we could either disrupt these or at least interact with them in a meaningful enough way. If I were having a brief interaction, I've, I've done work in the past uh, in hospital settings, bedside with brief interactions, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you also want to think about when you, when you come up with what the next steps are, how likely is that going to shape the hypotheses? How likely is that going to give me any usable information if it turns out that I'm off the mark. Mm. And I think that that's where it really helps to think functionally as well, because if you have sort of a stock go-to, um, you know, this is, this is the homework everyone does kind of thing, um, or a formulaic or sort of yeah. manualized way of going about it, then if something doesn't work, then you're left with your hat in your hands, not knowing what to do next. Mm-hmm. So you want to think about what's going to push enough um, and maybe even in a multivalent way where the feedback I get next time I hear from you and know that you tried this and it did it or didn't work, that I'll actually have something useful to follow up with. Okay. And I don't, I, I personally, I'd find it hard to imagine how to do that if you're not thinking functionally. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 part and parcel. Well, I'm I you know as I um, you know look at your body of work and uh, um, experience you both you know in trainings and the world conference, I I really am inspired by your living and values and and really just just giving so much. It's 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 really a thing of beauty, Matthew. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's just, I just, I don't know. I just, I feel a lot of, a lot of heart in the work that you do. And uh, so I'm really just, just honored that you're sharing this time with me here today and, uh, and sharing your, your wisdom and, and all that. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so, so um, uh, I'm going to put some link, a link to your website below. Um, you're available for, for consultation and uh uh, this new recently published book, uh, which I think has one of the coolest covers I've seen in a long time. I have to say, whoever designed that, high five to them. It was but, it was actually um, uh, the editor at Rutledge. Um, we were talking about my specifications were I like people. And while rainbows are great, I'd love uh, a trans flag as well, or some broader representations of diversity in the community. And she sent this to me and she said, I, I don't know that it totally fits the descriptions we talked about, but I saw this close up and this is from a photo collection from, uh, I think it was Buenos Aires pride in 2018. 
and the and the beads on the individual's forehead are the mm. colors of the trans flag. Mm. Um, but she said, you know, I I saw this photo and this this intimate, vulnerable, authentic kind of look, and it made me think of your book. And it's like, how could I say no to that? So that's that's the story of the cover. Good good choice. So yeah, that's the that was just published last year. Contextual behavioral therapy for sexual and gender minority clients. Uh, you're an editor there, and then also editor of. Uh, uh, mindful editor or author. Uh, I was author of this one, and then author. Ashling Ashling Leonard Leonard Curtin and I uh, co-edited um, 2016's uh, Mindfulness and Acceptance for working with sexual and gender minority clients. Yeah, yeah. yeah. cool. And uh, I just want to also reiterate, uh, remind folks that I'm myself and and uh, Luke are going to be starting a training group, so you can get a hold of me my website and the link below to, to if you want to be involved in, in this FAP training group. So Excellent. cool. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, okay. So, so yeah. Thanks so much. Matthew. I really appreciate your adding your voice to this, this But I'm getting stronger. They take a piece of me, but I'm getting stronger. They take a piece of me, but I'm getting stronger. They take a piece of me, but I'm getting stronger.